wonder if you've ever attended an event or maybe bought something, expecting it to do or be one thing, but then finding out it was so much more than you ever imagined. I remember the first time I bought Tillamook chocolate peanut butter ice cream. That was one of those experiences for me. If you have not yet experienced chocolate peanut butter ice cream from Tillamook, taste and see that the Lord is good. You can go home today under pastoral exhortation. And you can stop and you can pick it up. And I know Bluebell is good. Believe me, I'm a Bluebell apologist as well. But man, the Tillamook chocolate peanut butter ice cream, there's a ribbon of peanut butter that courses through the ice cream. It's not just an essence. They didn't just like sneeze some peanut butter into the ice cream. It's literally woven into the fabric of the the, the cream and the chocolate. It's amazing. It's amazing. Or I remember the first time I went to Hutchins. I, I, growing up out here, Hutchins wasn't really on the radar yet. And then I moved away and I moved to the, the land of perdition for barbecue, which is California. Uh, they don't know how to do barbecue there. They never will. They never have. It's just, they're beyond hope. They're lost when it comes to barbecue. So coming back here, one of my friends said, you have to try Hutchins. And I was skeptical. I was like, okay, I'll give this thing a, a, a chance. But I, I didn't know until I went and I tried their brisket. And I tell you what, it's the best brisket that, that God has ever blessed this earth with. I don't know what they do. I don't know what their bark recipe is, but it is amazing. It beats everything else. Some of y'all have that as part of your testimony, don't you? you? Maybe you came to church expecting church to be something and then found, it, found out that it was so much more than you could have ever imagined. You know, in a very real sense, all of us should have that be part of the testimony of what our relationship with Jesus is like. There should always be this reality where year after year after year, we are realizing and understanding and learning that Jesus is so much more than we could have ever imagined. In fact, rightly experienced, a real relationship with Jesus exceeds all expectations. That's what our passage is going to show us this morning. That when we understand, when we rightly experience a relationship with Jesus, it exceeds every expectation that we could have. John chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 43. Jesus has been in Samaria now for two days, staying with them. You remember the interaction with the woman at the well, and she had gone and brought the townspeople out, and they had invited Jesus to stay. Now he'd been there for two days. But in verse 43, it says, After the two days, he departed for Galilee. Remember, this was his original destination. He had been baptizing just in the Judean wilderness, and, and John and John the Baptist and him had been baptizing at the same time, and there was a a conflict that arose and Jesus wanted to avoid that. So he went up to Galilee. So he's resuming his trek up to Galilee. After the two days, he departed for Galilee for Jesus himself. This is a parenthetical statement inserted by the author John here. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. That's an allusion back to Chapter 2, when Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, the cleansing of the temple, and all the other events done there. But we pick up in 43, he, he moves on to go to Galilee. But then John adds this parenthetical note that Jesus himself had testified that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. What was he referring to there? Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth was a land or a city in the region of Galilee. So why would John say as he's leaving for Galilee that Jesus was leaving because he had testified that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown? What is going on here? There's a couple of suggestions. One being that Jesus or that John was implying that uh, Jesus wanted to move on from Samaria before it became a situation where he, quote unquote, wore out his welcome. 
that uh, the old statement, fish and friends smell after two days. Have you heard that one? That Jesus didn't want to be there too long to where the, the Samaritans would, would grow weary of him. So he was leaving before he would, uh, would suffer dishonor there in a, a de facto hometown. I think that's the worst of the, the options available. I don't think that fits the context. Samaria was in no way Jesus' hometown, nor were the Samaritans in danger of growing weary of him. They were excited to have him there. So others have suggested that John was referring to Judea because Jesus was of the house of David, of the lineage of David. David was of the city of what? The city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a Judean region, a Judean town. And so maybe John was, some suggest, referring to the fact that Jesus had been rejected down in Judea and in Jerusalem, and he was without honor in his home region there. So that's why he was going up to Galilee. That's another option. But I think that the preferable option here is I think John is foreshadowing what's about to happen in Galilee. I think John is pulling the curtain back for us ahead of time so that we're ready for the reception that Jesus is ultimately going to find in Galilee. Because verse 45 initially seems encouraging, doesn't it? If you look back at the text, it says that they welcomed him. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Okay, this is his home region, his home base. And they seem to be excited about Jesus. This doesn't seem to be dishonor. Yet, John goes on to say something else about their welcome. Notice, having what? Having seen all that he had done at the feast. Remember, in John 2, there were many who also saw all that Jesus had done at the feast. We read about them in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. The language there is he did not believe in their belief. Because why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. This is a spurious faith that was being professed by these people in Jerusalem. These Galileans, some of them were there as well. But regardless, they had heard about the same things that happened there. And their excitement about Jesus was about more about what he was going to do for them in their city than it was about Jesus himself. They were worked up and excited thinking, man, we saw what he did in Jerusalem. Maybe he's going to do some of that here. We heard about what he did and, and some of the signs that he's done. Maybe we're going to benefit from some of that here. So they're excited for him, not for Jesus, but for what Jesus could do for them. So I think John's statement in verse 44 is there to prepare us ultimately for the rejection that's going to take place there in Galilee. In fact, it's going to be rejection unlike any other. At one point in time in his ministry, Jesus is going to say of Capernaum and the regions around, woe to you, if the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. And so the region of Galilee, yes, is Jesus' hometown. And they're excited about him initially here in the text, but it's not going to stay that way for very long. It's times like these that are helpful for us to remember that John was unique in the authorship of his gospel. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic gospels. A lot of their material is, uh, is parallel accounts of many of the same events. John is unique. So much of John's gospel is unique to John himself. One of the reasons is John wrote much later in life. John penned his gospel in the, towards the, the end of his life in the, the, the late first century AD. So John had had decades between the occurrence of the events and the recording of the events. Why is that worth note? Because John is one of the most pastoral and theological amongst all of the gospels that we have. 
So as John wrote and recorded the things about Jesus' life, he recorded facts about Jesus' life. He recorded things that were true that actually happened about Jesus' life, but they were recorded through the eyes of a pastor, of a shepherd, and a theologian. Mark, think about Mark. Mark's gospel is immediately, 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 immediately. Jesus went and did this, did this, did this, did this, which makes sense because Mark was Peter's biographer, for lack of a better term. Mark's gospel is, is really Peter's account of what happened. So he's remembering it through Peter and just writing it down rapid fire. Think about Luke, right? Luke was a doctor, a scientist, and he wanted to investigate. He was all about the details as he was recording all of the things. And so you get the birth account of Jesus and we find out about who Quirinius was and who was the governor and everything else like that. John is, is more pastoral, pastoral. John is more theological in his approach. And his point of view on things like that comes out in situations like this where he's able to look back on the reception that Jesus received from these Galileans and prepare the reader beforehand to go in with the right expectations. That's what John's doing here. Also in this, John is writing to you and me, encouraging us to think about our own welcome of Jesus. The Galileans were excited about Jesus for the wrong reasons. Are you excited about Jesus for the right reasons? John's implying the question here. There's many reasons today why people welcome Jesus. Some of them the same as these Galileans. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that says if you get a little bit of Jesus in your life, then your life is going to get much better. If you get a little bit of Jesus in your life and have enough faith, you can be healed from this disease. You can have the dream house and the dream car and the dream job that you want. Those aren't the right reasons to welcome Jesus. Other people welcome Jesus today because of family obligations. You're around Jesus by proximity, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You simply are around Jesus because you're appeasing a husband or a wife, or you're appeasing a mom or a dad, but you, you don't have any real relationship with Jesus. That's not the right reason to welcome Jesus either. Other people welcome Jesus out of intellectual stimulation. They love to study. They love to learn. They love to go deeper. And so they have a lot of intellect. They've got a lot of head knowledge, but they don't have much of the heart knowledge of Jesus. Again, a faulty reason to welcome Jesus. Other people today welcome Jesus because of the get out of jail free card. You mean all of my sins are forgiven because this guy died on the cross 2,000 years ago so that I can be forgiven? You mean I can get out of hell by just walking an aisle, praying a prayer, raising a hand with all the heads bowed and eyes closed? You mean that's, that's all it takes and I'm, I'm forgiven and then I'm good to go? Some people come to Jesus for fire insurance, not for relationship. Again, that's a wrong reason to come to Jesus. These people are like the Galileans in this passage. Not coming to Jesus for Jesus, but for the benefits they get from Jesus. Church, the welcome Jesus wants from us is different. The reception, the relationship that Jesus wants with us is different. Think about Jesus' ministry. When he called his disciples, what did he say to them? He said two words to them. What were they? Follow me. That, that implies relationship. That implies proximity. That implies intimacy. Come and live life with me. Watch me. Learn from me. Do life together with me. Or think about when Lazarus, one of his earliest followers, dies, we'll get there in John chapter 11, what is Jesus' response to the death of Lazarus? Even knowing what, what he's about to do, what, what, what does Jesus do? Jesus, shortest verse in the Bible, what is it? Jesus weeps. 
Why does Jesus weep for Lazarus? Because Jesus had a relationship with Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend. Jesus cared for his sisters as well. Or think about in one of the most vulnerable moments that Jesus has on earth before the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes to pray, but he doesn't go by himself to pray, does he? What does he do? He takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he takes them, and he says, pray with me. And then think about Jesus while hanging on the cross. He looks down from the cross, and he sees two people. He sees John, the author of our gospel, and he sees his mother, Mary. And Jesus looks at John and looks at his mom and says to John, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. Because why? Because he had a relationship. He cared for them. Church, Jesus doesn't want to just be your get out of jail free card. He doesn't just want to be your fire insurance or your lucky rabbit's foot or your spiritual mascot. Jesus wants a real relationship with you. Point number one this morning is just that. Pursue that. Pursue a real relationship with Jesus. Real would imply that there are fraudulent relationships with Jesus. Real would imply that there are are, are unreal relationships with Jesus. Maybe you want to call it a fake relationship with Jesus. And I've just talked about what some of those are founded upon. They're founded upon faulty expectations of what it is to be a believer. Some of those things are true. Are our sins forgiven? Yes, Praise God they are. Do we get to get the quote-unquote get out of hell free card? Yes, and praise God we do. But that's not what our relationship with Jesus is primarily and foundationally about. Jesus is a living, breathing Savior. Let me ask you a diagnostic question as we get into unpacking this point a little bit. If you were to treat your closest earthly relationship the way you treat your relationship with Jesus, how would that go? Think about it this way. Some of y'all have distant cousins, and they're part of your family. You are technically related to them. If you saw them at a family reunion, you would call them your cousin. You would say, yeah, this, this is my cousin. And you would acknowledge that a default relationship exists between you and this cousin because of that familial bond. You don't really work at that relationship. It's just there because you guys are all a part of the same family. But your relationship with your cousin is different than your relationship with your siblings. Your relationship with that cousin is different than your relationship with your spouse. What's the main difference there? The main difference is you actually have a real, genuine relationship with your sibling, with your spouse, with your parents. See, you can have the label, oh yeah, family, because they're a distant cousin, but you have no relationship Sometimes Christians have a relationship with Jesus like they have a relationship with that distant cousin. It's a perceived relationship that's not really even there. We think that we have a relationship because we're all part of the same family. After all, I I, I go to church, I show up at church, and Jesus is at church, and so we've got this connection. By default, we have this relationship. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, I've always gone to church, so Jesus and I are good. I grew up in the church. My parents always brought me to church, and so I must have a relationship with Jesus because I've always been around Jesus' people and Jesus' things. In their minds, that relationship that exists by default is because they think, well, I prayed a prayer at some point, so I'm good to go. I walked an aisle at some point, so I'm, I'm good to go. But when you pull back the curtain on what they're 
relationship with Jesus actually looks like, it's quick to be revealed that there is really no relationship there at all. These are those that want the benefits of a perceived relationship with Jesus that we mentioned earlier, but they're just content with that. How do I know if that's me? Some questions. When's the last time that you prayed? I mean, think about a relationship between you and your your closest friend, earthly relationship that you have right now. What if you went as long between talking with them, communicating with them, as you've gone talking to God and communicating with God? Another question, how often are you reading your Bible? Or are you reading it at all? This is the, the, the primary way that God communicates through us to us. God's not talking to you through Netflix. He's talking to you here in the pages of his word. Are you listening by spending time in it? Let me ask you another question. Do you feel bitter or angry at God for a life of perceived disappointment? You think, man, my life, if, if, if I've got a relationship with Jesus, my life should be different than it is. Here's another question. Maybe, do you find that you're distancing yourself from the parts of the Bible that are less popular in our culture, in our society today? If this describes you, you may have more of a perceived relationship with Jesus than a real relationship with him. He may be serving more as your get-out-of-jail-free card or your spiritual mascot than your living, breathing Savior. If there's one relationship that should be the highest of importance to us in our lives, it's our relationship with Jesus. But, church, let's be honest, it's hard. It's hard, and I'm telling you that as your pastor too, I'm with you in that. It's hard. Why is it hard for us to cultivate a close relationship with Jesus? Well, a, th- a few things. Number one, we don't see him, Right? If you're seeing Jesus in your toast, let's talk afterwards, right? We, we don't see him. He's not physically present here in this room where you can look and go, there's Jesus. That's, it's hard to have a relationship with someone you don't see. The other thing is, he's not even here in a tangible way in which we literally hear his audible voice. We can hear his voice as he speaks through the scriptures, but this relationship that we're talking about, it's not like we can invite Jesus over to watch the game with us. And so how do we pursue a genuine relationship with someone like that? What does that look like? Well, a few thoughts for us. Number one, first, we need to understand that he wants to have a relationship with us. It's super tiny font on there. I apologize. It says, acknowledge that's what Jesus wants. He wants a relationship with you. That's evident in the the scriptures. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Revelation 3, verse 20. Jesus is here indicting a church that's lukewarm. They're neither hot nor cold. This church does not have a good, vibrant relationship with Jesus. Jesus wants intimacy with this church. What does he say in Revelation 3, 20? He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will notice the language here of relationship. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Table fellowship was one of the most intimate forms of relationship between friends in first century Israel. Jesus wants a relationship with you, church. Acknowledge that. 
John 15, 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Jesus is telling the disciples, you are my friends. Church, we can enter into that level of relationship with Jesus. He wants that with us. So the first step is acknowledging that he wants that. The second step for our 2020 vision people, you don't need help, but I'll read it for the rest of us. Work to cultivate that relationship. How do I pursue the relationship? I have to work at the relationship. Just like you do with any relationship. You need to put in the the, the sweat equity, so to speak, to cultivate that relationship. Three C's for what that looks like. You ready? First one is the, the C, communication. Communication, just like any other relationship, communication is imperative for us to have a close relationship, a real relationship with Jesus. What does communication look like in a relationship with Jesus? It looks like the word of God and prayer. Those are your two primary means of communicating with Jesus. The word is his revealed communication to us. One pastor once said, you want to hear God speak to you out loud, read the Bible out loud. This is how God speaks to us, church, is through the pages of the Word of God. Let's spend time listening by spending time in the Word. And then we communicate to God through prayer, bringing our requests, bringing our desires, bringing our thanksgiving, bringing our prayers, bringing our praises to Him. Communication. Any relationship that lacks communication is not a very strong relationship. So how do we pursue that? We pursue that through communication is one of the ways that we work to cultivate that. Another way is through commitment. Commitment. We've got the new year coming up. It's right around the corner. And I know a lot of us are waiting for the new year to to jump back into our, our, our reading plan for the year with the Bible. Hey, let me encourage you. Guess what? God doesn't need you to start on January 1st. He's ready for you right now. God's not like, okay, well, you missed a a lot of it, and so it'd be so much work for me to try to catch you up on what happened this year in the Bible, so why don't you just wait until January 1st, and then you can start again. No, 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 let's commit today, church, to cultivating these things. Let's jump in today to the Word of God. Like, I don't know where to start. John's a great place to start. Our daily Bible reading program is a great place to start. Get into the Word of God. Communicate with Him. Maybe you're saying, I don't even know how to pray or what to pray. It's, It's good for you just to start praying. There's a lot of different ways. ACTS is an acronym that a lot of people suggest to, for how to structure your prayer. Ready? A, adoration. Spend time just praising God for who he is and what he's done in your life. C, confession. Spend time confessing before God the sins that you're aware of in your life and in your heart. Asking for forgiveness for those sins. T, thanksgiving. Spend time thanking God. We're praising him in, in the first one. We're now we're thanking him for all the good things in our life. And then S stands for supplication, which means these are our requests that we're bringing to God. God, please help my marriage. God, please save my kids. God, please help the situation at work. So if you're struggling and you're going, I don't even know where to begin with prayer, that's maybe a good place for you to start. Acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. God wants that relationship with you, church. Commit to doing that. And then our final C is consistency. Stay at it. Stay at it. Schedule this time. Put it on the the calendar. Make sure that you invest consistently in this relationship. So first, the way that we pursue it is we understand that he wants it with us. He wants a relationship with us. Second is we work to cultivate that relationship. And then third and finally, 
We pray for God to increase our affection for Jesus. We pray, make that one of those supplications. God, please increase my desire for Jesus. Increase my affections for him. Increase my my desire to have that closeness, that relationship with Jesus. These are ways that we pursue a real relationship with Jesus. Church, Jesus wants that closeness with you. He does. He wants that. He desires that. He wants fellowship with you. He wants your affections. He wants your devotion. He wants your prayers. He wants your worship. He wants your time. He wants your honesty. He wants your anxieties. He wants you to be in a relationship with him. Not like a distant cousin, but like the closest relationship you have on this earth. So John writes here in these opening just few verses to in part expose our wrong motivations for why we want Jesus in our lives. We should be wanting to pursue a real relationship with Jesus. Uh, Well, now as we continue though, the the scene shifts to Galilee because he's there. They've welcomed him. Why? They've welcomed him because they saw all that he had done. They saw all the things that he had done in Jerusalem. They're excited. Jesus is there. Yes, this is awesome. Verse 46. So he came again to Cana. Cana should sound familiar to us. This is where he had done his first miracle. In fact, that's what John says. He came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine, back in chapter 2. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Okay, by this time, Jesus' fame is growing The word has gotten out about this sensational rabbi. And so people are excited. They hear that Jesus is on his way up to Galilee. He's now there. He's in Cana. People have found this out. And and, and word is spreading. You remember John refers to Jesus' miracles, right, as signs. Signs. And he does so because he is, as he's recording these seven signs that he has included, the second one wasn't a miracle as much as the cleansing of the temple was a sign of Jesus' authority. But these other ones are miracles. And, and here we see another one. We're about to see another one. And they're called signs because they're meant to communicate something deeper than what we see at face value. Jesus is about to do another sign, and John is getting us ready for this third sign. And I think what John's wanting to communicate in this sign is something about what we talked about in point one, about what this true relationship with Jesus really looks like. So understanding that, here you've got Jesus, he's in Cana. Then you've got this man, this official, who's in Capernaum. He hears that Jesus is in Cana. Here's a, a Google map of, of today, those two areas. Jesus, or the man is up in Capernaum. That's up in the top of the map, above the Sea of Galilee there, right on the coast. You've got Cana, which is down here, modern-day Cana, side of the biblical Cana, which is down here on the, the, your, yep, your left-hand side of the, the map there. And the distance between these two locations today, if you were to drive, is, uh, is about 25 miles. That's pretty accurate from what the distance was during Jesus' day between this town as well. About 20 to 25 miles, depending on the measurements or the sources that you consult. So this is no like, hey, I'm going to walk around the, the corner real quick to go talk to Jesus for a second. Well, as this story unfolds, I think it's a scene that we can empathize with, especially if you're in the room and you're a parent. But even if you're not, this is a sympathetic scene here. You've got a, a, a young father. He's described as an official. The word there in the Greek means a royal official. So this is someone who had some spot in Herod's official administration. 
Herod was the governor or the king of the day over this particular region. And so this man was associated with Herod in some regard. He held some power, some authority. And he's there in Capernaum, and he hears that now Jesus has come to Cana, and he's got a problem. What's his problem? He has a son who's sick. And not just sick, but sick to the point of death. The son is on his deathbed, and now, because Jesus is famous, he's heard that Jesus is closer than he's been to, to this point in this particular situation facing his son. So what does the official do? He goes to Jesus. You'll notice this is driving. Guess what he didn't have? This is not breaking any ground, is it here? First century Israel, they didn't have the, the, the car, by the way. Then You go to seminary, you learn things like that. They didn't have a car. <clears throat> and so he leaves to go, and what is he doing? How's he going to get there? Most likely he's going to walk. Walking about 20 miles to get to Jesus. Why? What would cause him to do that? Well, the desperation of the situation. He gets there and he says, I, I need you to come and, and heal my son because my son is at the point of death. Notice in verse 47, it says, he went to him and asked him. He asked him. We lose something in the English translation there. The, the tense of the Greek verb there suggests that this is a continual, persistent asking. Some translations carry that over. The Legacy Standard Bible says that the man was asking Jesus, come down and heal my son. The, the New American Standard, the 95 uh, translation, says he was imploring. I think that's the idea here. He's pleading with Jesus. He's begging Jesus, Rabbi, my son is at the point of death. Please come with me. And so let's not fall into the trap of sterility through this translation to just say, oh, well, hey, uh, Rabbi, if you're, if you're not busy, if you didn't have plans this afternoon, could you, could you come with me? I've got my, my son, he's dying. It's no big deal. If you've got something else to do, Jesus, it's okay. No, I, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of this man. Again, it's a scene that should cause us some empathy, but Jesus' response to, seems to be almost the exact opposite. Notice how Jesus replies to the man in verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That seems like a rebuke. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is where a Texas standard version, the TSV, would be helpful over the ESV. Because though it says in the text that Jesus looked at him, this is what Jesus said, unless y'all believe. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. So in other words, yes, Jesus is looking at this dad, but he's really addressing everyone within earshot, and he's indicting the, the, the bigger problem here. This is a, a literary device. It's, it's called a synecdoche, where the, the part represents the whole. So here you have the part, which is this man who has a very real, honest need. His son is dying. Can Jesus solve that problem? Yes. But was Jesus primarily sent to heal this man's son to keep him from dying? Is that the main reason why this man even needed Jesus? No. You broaden that to consider the Galileans around him who probably were just voyeurs of the miraculous. They wanted to watch him do water to wine again. They wanted to see what he would do. They wanted to know, is he going to go into the synagogue up here and flip over some temples? What's, what, tables? What is Jesus going to do? 
And Jesus here is, is pulling back the curtain on their spurious faith. And so, yes, he's looking at this man, but he's talk, talking to everybody. This crowd, think about them as they're gathering. They're from Jesus' home base, home territory. They knew him. They knew Mary and Joseph. They, 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 he had grown up around them. This, this is Jesus, after all. We know Jesus. In fact, they may have even been patting themselves on the back a little bit, saying to themselves, man, look at us. Well, look who we produced. We've got this sensational rabbi on the scene. Yeah, he may be a, a descendant of David, but he was, he's from up here. He's ours. And maybe even they're thinking to themselves, man, you know what? We're due a little bit of a piece of the pie of this guy. He should do some pretty amazing things here. This is our hometown, after all. He should, he should be grateful for having grown up around here. You know the rest of the story. Jesus is going to heal this man's son, but not before what he does right here that we just read. Not before calling out this certain sense of entitlement that had caused them to miss the forest for the trees. They didn't understand the real need for Jesus because they thought that they deserved more than what Jesus was really there to do. Let me ask a question. What if Jesus had never healed this man's son? Or what if Jesus had never healed the lame man that we'll read about later in chapter 5? Or what if Jesus had left Lazarus in the tomb? What if Jesus had never healed the blind man in John chapter 9? What if Jesus never raised the widow's son in Luke chapter 7? Would he have still done enough when all was said and done? Christian, what if he never answers the prayer you've been praying the way that you want him to respond? Has Jesus done enough for you if he never, never does another thing for you this side of eternity? Our second point this morning is this, fight against an entitled faith. Fight against an entitled faith. What really are we due from God? More than we've already received in Jesus. There's a, a trend that's sweeping not just Christianity, but really the world. The trend is this. It's called gratitude journaling. Maybe some of you have, have practiced this. It's a great thing to do, to take time out and to think about the things that we're thankful for, the things that we're grateful for. But it's, it's taken off so much, especially outside of, of the church with people, that, that the world is stopping. Because within the church, we kind of understand this premise that we should be grateful because we know who we're grateful to, Right? But when the world starts, stops and starts to think about, man, I need to be a more grateful person, and, and they're starting to do this, people are, are standing up and doing studies about this now because they're realizing, man, this is having a, a dramatic impact on people in a positive sense. In fact, here's some things that they found that gratitude journaling does for people. It improves sleep. One study found that it provided an extra 30 minutes of quality sleep if you spend some time before going to bed journaling about what you're thankful for. I know what all y'all are going to be doing tonight now. It'd be like 30 extra minutes of sleep. That's like turning back the clock every night. To get, uh, I'm going to be thankful. We're going to be a thankful church. It's awesome. It improves sleep. It, it boosts your immune system. We're heading into cold and flu season. Might be good to be grateful. 
Yeah, it, it causes us to, to be healthier as we're grateful people. It increases happiness. In fact, they found that it literally rewires pathways in the brain that, that cause us, when we're grateful, to revisit positive experiences. The more we think about the positive experiences that cause us to be grateful, the happier that we are. That, that makes sense, I, I think. It also decreases anxiety and stress, as well as even chronic pain in some of the studies that have been done. When we're more grateful for what God has done in our lives, it has that positive impact on us as well. They've also found that it decreases blood pressure. Next time you go to uh, the doctor's office and you get white coat hypertension, maybe you just need to be a little bit more thankful before the doctor walks in the door. So now you have these challenges on social media saying, hey, let's do a 30-day challenge of, of 30 days of gratitude. Post 30 things that you're, you're grateful for. That's a good thing. And y'all, it's a, it's a good thing for us as a church to be grateful people. And it has, has to start with the cross and the empty tomb. And again, like I said, if that's all God ever did, 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 did for you, if that's all God ever did for you, that's enough. That's enough. Entitlement kills gratitude. Because entitlement focuses on what we, thought, what we want and feel like we deserve more than what we often have in spite of what we deserve. I mean, think about the cross, guys. The, the, the cross gives us exactly what we don't deserve. What do we deserve from God? What are we due from God? Let's return to that question for a moment. His full wrath against our sin. What did we get from him in exchange? The atonement of that wrath through Jesus dying on the cross as our substitute, paying the penalty for, him, for our sins so that we can be forgiven and then rising from the dead so that we can live with him forever. That is the greatest gift any of us have ever received. And that is enough fodder for us to be a grateful people for the rest of eternity without feeling like, God, I'm due more than what you've already done for me. We have no guarantees from God outside of our salvation. So let me ask some questions. What if God never gives you that promotion? What if God never heals you? What if God never saves your spouse? What if God never answers the prayer that you've been praying for 20 years? What if God never gives you that child? Has he done enough for you to live the rest of your life in gratitude for what he's already done. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's not about the fact that it's great, we get to back up our request to God and have him just pour out all things to us now. Paul's writing that so that we understand just how much he gave us in Christ to begin with. Is that enough for us? If your faith in Jesus is anchored to what he may do for you, your faith is not anchored to Jesus. We must have a relationship with him based on what he's already done and who he is, not what he might or might not do for us between now and eternity. Okay, that said, let me get off of our toes, including my own. 
because I want to balance that with an understanding that God is a gracious father and does delight to answer the prayers of his children. I'm not so much suggesting at this point that, that we can't or shouldn't ask things of the father. Instead, I'm asking you to examine what your faith really rests upon and to make sure that it rests upon what Christ has already done for you, not what you may ask him to do for you in the next year, the next five years, the next 10 years. But I do want us to think about the fact that he does delight to answer our prayers, and the text bears that out. Pick up again in verse 49. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So he's, he's going, okay, I, 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 we can talk about this thing later, Jesus. Right now my son's going to die. I need you to come and, and, and deal with the, the issue pressing on my heart right now. Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, that his son was uh, going to live, and he, he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. So the official persists, as any of us would in this situation, I think. And Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. Okay, Jesus speaks healing over this boy's life. Now, let's talk about distance for a second. The distance between us and Gunter, Texas, is about 22 miles. 22 miles. That's close to the distance that Jesus is away from this young man as this young boy is, is dying. Okay, 22 miles. Uh, right now, you can't do anything from where you're seated, 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 to impact anything in Gunter, Texas. That is without your phones. Put your phones away. Jesus didn't have an iPhone. He didn't have an Android either, in case you're going, yeah, he had an Android. No, he didn't. <laughs> okay, so distance to Gunter is about 22 miles. How about this? Distance from us to Denton. How often are you thinking about what's going on in Denton, Texas these days? About the same distance, about 22 miles. About the distance between Capernaum and Cana. Let me drive it a little bit further, closer to home for some of y'all in this room. Distance from here to Aubrey. It's right in that wheelhouse, about 18 miles. Okay. Jesus says to this father, go, your son will live. The father goes home, finds out that it was at that moment that his son was healed. Here we see again that Jesus is not just this rabbi who can teach well. He's God in the flesh. He heals him from this distance. He demonstrates his power over sickness and disease, simply speaking it into existence. Go, your son will live. And at that moment, he is healed. Now, I want us to think about this man, because the man goes. In this man, I think we get a, a little picture of the progression of faith. Because initially, the man comes to Jesus thinking he needs Jesus for one thing. What's the one thing for this man? He thinks he needs Jesus to heal his son. Sometimes we come to Jesus thinking that we need something that, that isn't really what we need from Jesus. We come to Jesus thinking, well, I need a better life. I need that promotion at work. I need my life to go a little bit better. We, we kind of come to Jesus with a karma mentality than we really do coming to Jesus because we're sinners in need of salvation. But Jesus comes, or this man comes to Jesus nonetheless and, and thinks he has a need that, that Jesus needs to meet. Well, Jesus condescends to this man and, and graciously meets the, the man's need and, and says, go, your son will live. We, we see the seed of faith begin to, to blossom in this man's life. He leaves Jesus behind there and walks the six, seven, eight hours back up to his home there. 
trusting, believing, hoping that the promises of God, the promises of this rabbi would bear out to be true by the time he got home. Well, then he's met along the way, and the, the, the servants say, hey, your son is made well. And, and he says, well, what time was that? And he says, it was about the seventh hour, about 1 p.m. And the man goes, the light bulb goes on, and all of a sudden, now his faith is in full bloom as he's realizing that's exactly when Jesus said this was going to happen. And then the man goes home, and here's why I think this is genuine faith, because the text says this man believed, and then what does it say? His whole, what? Household believed with him. This man becomes an evangelist when he gets home. He becomes an evangelist when he gets home. He doesn't sit at home going, well, how great of a dad am I? Dad of the year, here, I walked 16 hours round trip, and and now my son's healed. No, he makes sure that everybody knows why his son is healed. So I think we see this, this evidence that is true for some of us in this room, that sometimes coming to faith in Christ is a progression. It is a journey. But for those of you who are believers in this room, I think we see something else in here that is encouraging to us. Yes, we have to guard against an entitled faith, as we talked about earlier. But you know what? Sometimes that can result in a timid and reserved faith, which is also to be avoided. Jesus didn't have to do anything for this man. He had already done enough, like we just talked about, but he did do something for this man. Sometimes in response to the false prosperity gospel, we can swing the pendulum so far in the opposite direction that we fail to expect big things from a big God anymore. It's okay, church, to pray big prayers. It's okay to pray for God to do the the big thing that you need him to do in your life. It's okay, believer, for you to go to God and say, God, here's what I need. I'm going to ask with boldness that you would do this for me. The key is then we need to trust him with the results. Final point this morning is just that. Pray boldly and trust God. Pray boldly and trust God. Here, Jesus heals this child from a considerable distance by just saying, your son will be well, go. That would fall into a category that we here at Compass call a GT1. What is GT1? GT1, God thing one. That's God thing of top priority, highest degree. This is where natural law is suspended. This is a miracle in the truest sense of the form, miracle. Okay, think Moses parting the Red Sea. That's a God thing one. If you go out to, uh, to Lake Louisville this afternoon and hold up a stick above your head, guess what's not going to happen? That water's not going to split, right? Or how about Jesus walking on water, which I'm sure all of us in this room grew up and at one point you saw a pool and you thought, maybe if I run fast enough. And you hit and you were like, I'm, no, I made it halfway across the pool. And your, your mom or dad is on the side going, no, you made it one step in. And then you just were underwater, right? Walking on water, that's a God thing one. Natural law is suspended in the miraculous event. That's happening here. From a distance of 20 miles, Jesus heals that boy by just saying that it's so. Hey, do, do God thing ones still happen today? Do miracles of that degree still happen today? You know what? They do. They do. How do they happen today? Well, here's how they don't happen. We're not going to have a miracle service here at the church where we say, hey, come here and Pastor PJ is going to heal you by casting out your disease or your sickness or laying hands on you or lengthening your toes or anything else like that. That's not how it happens, y'all. How does it happen? It happens through God answering the prayers of the church. It happens when somebody goes into a doctor's visit and the MRI comes back and reveals that there's tumors spread throughout the whole body. 
And at the next visit where they do another scan to accurately figure out what the treatment plan is going to be, those tumors aren't there anymore. That's a suspension of natural law. That's a God thing one. Those things still happen today. Is it okay for us to pray for them to happen? Absolutely. Can our faith be contingent upon whether or not they do happen? Absolutely not. We have to have a faith that says, God, whether or not you do this, I trust you. But I am going to ask that you will. I'm going to ask that you will. The other category then is the GT2. That's, that's things that we call miracles that really at the end of the day is not a suspension of natural law. Maybe it's getting that promotion against all odds. You walk into your boss's office, you think you're going to get fired, and he says, hey, here's an attaboy and an, a, a promotion for you. And you walk out and you call your wife and you say, you'll never believe what happened. It's a miracle. Well, it's not a suspension of natural law, but it's God doing something in your life that's pretty, pretty powerful, pretty amazing, something that you needed done. Or maybe it is seeing that positive pregnancy test after dozens and dozens that have showed up negative. Is that a suspension of natural law? No. Is that God showing up for you? Yes. Is it okay to seek those things, to pray for those things, to pray for the reconciliation of the marriage that you've all but given up on at this point? Is it okay for you to pray that God will do a miracle, so to speak, in that marriage? Yes. It is good and right and, 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 and excellent to do that. We need more of that childlike attitude when it comes to our prayer lives, church. In fact, my son Luke just turned eight recently, and we were talking the other day and said, Luke, what do you want? And he said, I, I want a car. Like a matchbox car, son? No. Okay, well, what kind of car are you talking about? A Lamborghini. He's eight. He can't even spell Lamborghini, and neither can I. But he's asking big things. You know, Jesus compared our relationship to God as a child to a father, didn't he? He said, hey, what father among you, if his son asked for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? And then he went on to say, man, if, if you earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask? Is it a guarantee? No. Are we going to name it and claim it? No. Is our faith contingent upon the answer? No. But can we ask? Can we pray boldly and trust him with the results? Yes. Why does God delight in that? Because he delights in answering them. Because every time God answers a big prayer, it's opportunity for big praise. And that's what happens here. Jesus heals this man's son, and what happens? Jesus gets the glory. God gives you that promotion at work. I hope God gets the glory. God gives you that child. I hope God gets the glory. God reconciles your marriage. I hope God gets the glory. Even the smaller ones. When we get in our cars and we drive from home to work, and we get there safely, does God get the glory? Pray big prayers, church. Pray in such a way as to provide opportunities for God to show up big and to receive big praise for showing up when he does. Rightly experienced, a relationship with Jesus truly does exceed all expectations. If we come to him for the right relationship. Again, if Jesus never does another thing for you this side of eternity, has he done enough? So what we're going to focus on right now is we observe communion together. What it means that he has done enough. Communion is all about this. It's a memorial. It's something that we practice together that's nothing mystical. It's nothing magical. Nothing happens to these elements when they're passed out. 
but it's an opportunity for you and for me to think back on what it means that God has already done enough. Communion commemorates the death of Christ on the cross. Jesus instituted it in the upper room before going to the cross when he broke the bread and, and passed the cup. So this is my body, which is for you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. And it was in anticipation of the greatest gift that any of us have received, the gift that should keep us grateful no matter what happens in our lives, and that is the death of Christ for us. So as these elements are going to be passed here momentarily, let me encourage you to consider three things. There are three dangers for us when it comes to communion. The first is this. It's a lack of conversion. Communion is for someone who is a follower of Jesus. So if you are not saved, please allow these elements to pass by. These are for the church. These are for those that have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and he is truly their savior. They've got that true relationship with Jesus. The second danger is a lack of confession. As the elements are passed and music is played, let me encourage you to reflect on and to think on your life, your week, to pray as David prayed, Lord, search me and know me and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way that's everlasting. Confess sin as you go to take these elements which represent the payment that was made for those sins. And the final danger is the lack of concentration, that we would take these elements casually, flippantly, like it's no big deal. So as the music plays and the elements are passed, give some thought to what we're, we've talked about, that God has already done more for you than you need. He's done everything for you that you need. And truly, pray and ask that God would get you to a place to be able to say, God, if you never did anything for me for the rest of my life, you've already done enough because of what we're celebrating right now. Even that song that was playing to begin, if you recognized it, was the song Jesus Paid It All. That's why he's done enough. There's none left. I talked about it before with that cup. When we drink that juice and there's that little bit left, there's no more of the wrath of God left in the cup because it was all poured out on Christ. That's why what he's already done is enough. Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you stand with me as I pray? God, thank you for Christ and all that that means, all that he's done for us, which is more than enough. But Lord, also thank you that you are a father who hears our prayers, that we can come to you and pray because of what Jesus has done for us, that we can bring big requests to you knowing that there is nothing impossible for you. And so God, help us to be a people that prays boldly 
but trust you with the outcome. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We look forward to what you have in store for us this week. We pray that we would go out excited to serve you with our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you guys next week.